during this retreat so far, we've been sharing with you a variety of different, you could say, practices of emptiness or, or ways of, of framing it within your practice. Seeing the empty nature of, of experience, of phenomena. And Don took us through that guided and, and spoke to us about anicca, about impermanence. And just that, that, that uh, simple but important practice of seeing experience arising and passing away, moment after moment after moment. And then Guy last night, Gil, sorry. <laughs> Off by three, by two letters. Gil shared with us uh, how the, the stream enterer, this is what the stream enterer sees, arising and passing. So the centrality of that in terms of, of uh, seeing the empty nature of experience. And then the morning where Gil took us through the guided of, of emptying, just when the mind is getting more and more concentrated, more and more samadhi, you could say there's less and less fabrication happening. We can get a sense of this emptying of the mind in the settling. And then that, that whole piece around dependent origination, moving from things to processes, from nouns to verbs. And Susie expanding on that, noticing how this mind fabricates experience. You could even say that experience equals fabrication. Experience is constructed and it's the scene of that. And then the sense restraints. The skill, this the skill we're learning of relaxing the senses, not maybe not maybe not so much restraining, but relaxing the senses so they don't get hooked in a way, so they don't fabricate in unskillful ways, so they don't get hooked in unskillful ways. Seeing the the empty nature of experience, seeing that there's, it's empty of self and anything pertaining to, to a self. And this morning what I'd like to share with you is not another practice, but some important things to keep in mind when we're engaged in these, we could call emptiness practices. And to start with a, a story. Early on in my practice, I remember uh, when I began to be exposed to this teaching around emptiness, especially that, that experience is empty of a self. My mind interpreted it in a really interesting way, which was, I was so excited about this idea that really what reality is about is I'm not in it, right? There's no me there. But the reason I liked it so much is because I didn't like myself so much. Right. Ah, and here's a spiritual practice where I can get rid of that me that I so don't like. That there's been such a habit of judging moment after moment after moment. You could say so much of my struggle at the beginning of practice was just that. I was just looking for a way to to get away from myself, to get rid of myself. It was just too painful, the feeling of dislike. 
And what a cool thing that here now I get to have a spiritual path where I get to get rid of it. And I want to point out, this was a misunderstanding of this teaching that we've been giving you, the teaching of emptiness. What I needed to learn was the skillful use of emptiness and to be aware of these possible unskillful uses of it. The, the psychologist Jack Engler speaks to this. He was uh, at Harvard for a long time, but uh, I appreciate m many of his writings because he's pointing out these dynamics that we can bring to spiritual practice that often go unnoticed. Like the, the term that's used around it is spiritual bypassing. This bypassing of using the, the teachings to bypass important, you could say, personal issues important issues of the conventional world. And not only bypassing important personal issues, bypassing important systemic and collective issues. A spiritual practice can be utilized also to bypass those issues, just to move right into to these practices of emptiness. And there can be so much harm for ourselves and the world that we live in when, when we utilize these teachings in an unskillful way. And Jack Engler put it in a very s simple way. There's, the, the, I want to say it's more nuanced and complex than this, but it, but it at least gives the, the overall uh, feeling of the importance of this. He said, after working with so many practitioners and seeing this dynamic so often, he said, you have to be somebody before you can be nobody. And so often there can be this wanting to be nobody without understanding the importance of being somebody. So how do you keep this in mind? How can there be a sensitivity to this? And most importantly, how to understand what I'm sharing with you in the context of these teachings on emptiness. And in order to explore this this morning, I, uh, I'll be turning to some teachings on uh, from Nagarjuna. Nagarjuna was a kind of second, third century practitioner and he is most famous for this text that he wrote called uh, the Mula Madhyabhaka Karika, which sometimes translated as the fundamental wisdom of the middle way. Or Stephen Batchelor translates this title as verses from the center. And just a little bit of background about Nagarjuna to place him in the, the context of the unfolding of the entirety of Buddhism. Many scholars think that Nagarjuna was uh, probably the second most influential figure in all of Buddhism, just behind the Buddha, in terms of the influence that just, you could say, this work had on many schools of Buddhism. More, much more on these later schools of Buddhism, but still there. And this morning I we'll be using just a few lines, really just three lines to, to help us uh, get a sense of uh, what I'm talking about in this beginning of the skillful use of, of emptiness. And when I read these lines, what's been so striking to me when I started to learn about this, and I, I am so grateful for colleagues and friends that know so much more about the, how to read Nagarjuna and uh, 
have done the, their due diligence in, in that whole practice. That these three lines I'm going to be sharing with you, that there's been over a thousand years probably, there's been you know close to a thousand years of study and reflection and practice around just these three lines. Remember, there's probably been a thousand perspectives just on these three lines. And it's the teaching on the two truths, the two truths doctrine that is uh, quite central to later notions of, of emptiness. So this morning I'm going to read them and then uh, I want to be clear what my intention is, is to keep them relevant to our practice in our lives and to simplify this whole exploration. So yes, there's going to be nuances that I'm just going to pass over in order to simplify it, to make it make it something that's that's real for us and practical. I hope. We'll see what happens. Here are these, uh, these three lines of Nagarjuna. And this is in your, your, uh, your study guide. It's going to be under the ultimate and conventional, even though I, I'm uh, using a different way of translation, translating this word ultimate because I find it's more effective for our practice. He says, the, the Buddha's teaching of the Dharma is based on two truths a truth of worldly convention and a liberating truth. Those who do not understand this distinction between drawn between these two truths do not understand the Buddha's profound truth. Without a foundation in the conventional truth, the significance of this liberating truth cannot be taught. And without understanding the significance of the liberating truth, liberation is not achieved. So how to begin to understand this. The first line, the, the Buddhist teaching of the Dharma is based on two truths, the truth of worldly convention and a liberating truth. So the conventional, the conventional truth has, uh, is concerned or is centered around concepts and ideas and constructs. So it's the, the whole world, the entire world of conceptualization and, and concept. Right? In really basic ways. Here I am. I'm sitting over here. This is me. I'm Brian. That isn't me over there. That's Susie. No, 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 that's not me. That's Susie. I'm here. But that's just a concept. This is what we've been exploring. Oh, that's, a, that, that, that's this concept of meanness. This is the conventional, this conventional language that we're using. Whenever I use language, I'm, I'm using conventions. And then the liberating truth. It's this realization that things like me, meanness, are just concepts. You could say the liberative truth is a way of seeing. It is a way of seeing that has this quality of non-clinging. It sees that this sense of me or I is a concept. Okay, so conventional truth. Here I am. Liberating truth 
It's this activity of seeing, oh, that, that right there? Oh, that's interesting. Concept. It's conceptualization. It sees that. It's the seeing of that. So it has this quality freedom because then the heart is not hooked into believing that me is more real than it actually is. Remember, this liberating truth, it's not a place or a thing or a state. It's the seeing that this is conventional. We have both of them here. A truth of worldly convention and this liberating truth. And then we have the second line. It's understanding the distinction. This is just conventions. This is the scene of those conventions that has inherent equality of freedom. And also what I want to point out with this is that when, when we see that the self is just, as a, just a convention, it doesn't mean that it disappears. So here's the liberating truth and it sees that this is just conventional doesn't mean it disappears. I'm, I'm still here. It just means there's a different relationship to the conventional world. Conventions are still there, ready to be used, but, but the heart isn't entangled in them, not lost in them. And this is, this is the important turn for, for liberation. Non-clinging, not to be hooked. So again, here we have it. Here I am, the conventional world, the liberating truth, conventional truth, liberating truth. You know, when Don was and Susie were speaking about, you know, seeing this conceptual world in a different way, that it's 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 impermanent. It's there's not a thing there. It's fabricated. So here is this this initial understanding of these lines. What also, what I want to point out about these lines is the, this interesting uh, word that Nagarjuna use, uses is that there are two truths. That the Buddha's Dharma is based on two truths. Not one truth and the other one is not true. So I find this really interesting. He's not saying, oh, well, the conventional world is not true. And seeing conventions, seeing concepts is true. Both are true in some way. What's up with that? What is, what, how is he using this word truth? How does this, what does this have to do with our practice? The way I take this word in this context that I'm speaking to you in is it's, it's truth in the sense of that which leads to freedom, that which leads to awakening. So these, these three verses um, occur in a chapter where he is uh, talking about the Four Noble Truths and how the Four Noble Truths, what are the Four Noble Truths? They're conventional truth. Why are they part of conventional truth? Because they're concepts. So they're over here. But they're really great conventional truths because they lead to my liberation. So here we have it, the, these two truths in the sense that both are essential for our freedom. Like this world of conventions around the conventional truth is so helpful, the conventions that we follow. 
like the convention of driving on the right-hand side of the road. It's a great convention. And it's good to be flexible. If we go to the UK, if you go to the UK, I don't know if everyone's, anyone's gotten off the plane and you go to the UK and, uh-oh. <laughs> you have to remember. <laughs> Left-hand side of the road. So really useful, these, these conventions. And they're just conventions, right? We're on the right side or the left side, but it, it, it can be so important for navigating our lives. And this is what I needed to learn for myself when it was like, I just wanted to bypass being somebody. Oh, it's conventionally really useful for me to learn how to be somebody and to take care of that in some, in some manner. This is so important because this is what I was bypassing was this being somebody. Just on a simple level, the practice of beginning to love myself, to have kindness to myself, has been essential for the unfolding of this path. Not just seeing the empty nature of the self, but, but, but taking up that convention of me and cultivating kindness. So important. And what I find interesting is, is when I read the discourses, these early Buddhist texts, I find the Buddha speaking to this in interesting ways, that, that the notion of a self is really helpful for our practice. For example, there's this, uh, this conversation that's going on between uh, Chitta, Chitta, the elephant trainer's son, and, and the Buddha about, you could say, that the usage of this word self. And just as a side note, I, I love Chitta just in terms of his, his background. So he, um, he got ordained seven different times under the Buddha because uh, he left the, the order six times. So he just got ordained and was like, no, this isn't for me. And came back. And came back. And then, uh, and then eventually attained liberation. Isn't that relieving? You know, if, if you've... If <laughs> maybe, you've maybe some of you have escaped the retreats once or twice and come back <laughs> physically or hopefully not physically. Who knows where, where all of you are going at night. Um, or mentally. <laughs> And here you are again. You know, you're still on the path. You know, just please not more than six times though. That's that's the important thing. So so Chita's asking um all these these questions um about the self and different kinds of selves and and then uh, the Buddha just very succinctly says, uh, Chita, these are merely names, expressions, turns of speech, designations in common use in the world which the Tathagata uses without misapprehending, them, without misapprehending them. Can we utilize this notion of a self without misapprehending it? Being somebody and realizing that we're nobody. This use of identity without misapprehending it. And there's another discourse that I find so interesting in the numerical discourse is the Takari Sutta. And, and in this uh, Sutta, and uh, 
I'm, I'm really grateful for the translator. I think it was uh, Nicholas uh, Nizami's around his insight around this. And this Brahmin comes to the Buddha and says, okay, so this is what I've heard. There is no self-doer. There is no sense of self behind doing. This is what I've heard. And so when I hear this, it's like, oh yeah, this, that's what the, the Buddha's teaching. And, and the Buddha says, no, 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 no. I don't teach that. Oh, there, there is a self-doer. There, there is this experience of initiating action, this, this sense of uh, a continuity with someone who does an action. What's up with that? Because so often we're, we're not exposed to this Buddha. We're exposed to the Buddha that says, this is not me, this is not mine, this is not myself. And yet here in this conversation, he's saying something different to this Brahmin. What I hear in this is a couple of things. You know, this is what I hear the Buddha saying around this is, yet yeah, there's a place to utilize a sense of self. For example, we need to have a strong sense of agency to deeply engage in this practice. This is where I needed to have a, a strong sense of me in this kind way, to give a stability that I care about myself. And I want myself to be free to use that convention. And not only that, that, that this basis that we're invited to have faith in, that this, this notion that, that actions have consequences. So it's ha having the sense that I have a sense of agency where, where, where there's, there can be this ethical way of being in the world. not entangled in this construct of a self, but rather effective, effectively utilizing it. Yeah, realizing you're nobody. So important. Being nobody. The freedom from that. This is what we come back to again and again. And can you, can you take up the construct of being somebody when it's, when it's a, a, applicable to your freedom and to the freedom of the world? So back to my first story, what I, what I realized around not liking myself so deeply, it was also intertwined as, of, since I didn't like myself, uh, there was such a tendency to want to be invisible. Because for me at the beginning of my practice, invisibility equaled safety. Maybe some of you know this. How if, if I could only be invisible, then I can be safe. And hopefully you, you hear the overlap with meditation. There might be other folks like this. Sometimes folks who come to meditation might hope for this. Of If I'm not here, then, then nothing can happen to me. And it was so important to see that, that part of practice was something different than that. A different relationship to this construct of me. There's a a poem that I think exemplifies this process of coming into ourselves in a way that fits with this practice. And I'll, I'll, I'll connect it with a, uh, a practice or two. And it's a poem by the poet May Sarton and it's called, Now I Become Myself. 
And hearing the background of Mace Horton can be helpful just to get a, get a sense of the context of this this poem and and how it was uh, expressing not what she was only for her, what she was individually uh, navigating, but also collectively. So Mace Horton was in a, a same-sex relationship in the 1940s and 50s living in this country. So imagine... 1940s, 1950s, not following the heterosexual norm. I mean, it's still very challenging during these times, but even more challenging in the 40s and 50s. Challenging in the sense of maintaining a strong sense of self and not succumbing to a societal dynamic of invisibility. And she wrote this poem during this time of her life. And it's interesting, when she began to openly write about lesbianism, which wasn't until the 1960s, her greatest fear is that it would destroy her career. So she, be, she begins this poem. I'll just share the beginning of this poem. Now I become myself. It's taken time, many years and places. I have been dissolved and shaken worn other people's faces, run madly as if time were there, terribly old, crying a warning, hurry, you'll be dead before. Before, before what? Before you reach the morning or the end of the poem is clear or love safe in the walled city? Now to stand still, to be here, to feel my own weight and density. So important to feel our own weight and density. Through a strong sense of self. Especially, you know, there might be those of you who are in some way like Mace Harton, a, a kind of a situatedness that's been marginalized, that's on the margins, where, where the societal message is a message of invisibility. So it's so important to, f to have this sense of weight and density when, it, when, it, when we're thrown into a context that feels like we're being told we're invisible or we don't count, or we're less than in some way. And not only that, to, to feel our own weight and density in terms of the opposite, and this exploration has been so important for me, to feel the weight and density that comes with being part of some dominant group. whether that be the dominant group of identifying as being heterosexual or male or having English as a first language or white or a United States citizen or middle class and upwards. 
there's a weight and density that comes with that. How do you uh, maneuver that weight and density? How do you see it play out? Because what I notice, what comes with this weight and density, the word that I use, this comes from Re Rebecca Solnit, so appreciate her writings around this. It's, it's a kind of, what is intertwined with that weight and density is a kind of oblivion of a not seeing. Oh yeah, this is, oh, I'm feeling my weight and density in these ways. So important to be somebody to notice this before being nobody. And this, of course, crosses over to the, the, to the collective dimensions that, that can be bypassed with teachings of emptiness. So uh, cultivating a, a, a strong sense of self in a skillful way, not, not in the ways of oblivion, but in an uplifting way. And the Buddha talks about this. He, he, he talks about it as, at least the way Bhikkhu Bodhi uh, mentions it, as an equipment of the mind. It's interesting how he explains this equipment of the mind. He says, here, practitioner, a practitioner is a speaker of the truth. And when one is a speaker of the truth, there's a thinking, oh, I'm honest. Oh, cool. I'm honest. And from that, one gains inspiration and the meaning of that gains inspiration in the Dhamma, gains gladness connected with the Dhamma. And it is that gladness connected with the wholesome that I call an equipment of the mind. And then he goes through other qualities like, oh, I am one who gauge, engages in, in generosity and then gaining inspiration in that, gladness connected with that and feeling it as this support or equipment of the mind, support of the mind. Isn't that an interesting practice? I didn't learn that growing up, <laughs> growing up Catholic. I mean, there are maybe some good things about growing up Catholic, but that wasn't one of them. To, to do something that's wholesome and then to have the thought, wow, that's pretty cool. Look what I just did. I did something that's generous. Wow, I feel good about myself for being generous. Wow, this is nice. I did a good thing. And probably what's coming to mind, oh, that's, that's, that's pride. <laughs> you can't do that. That's, that's, that's creating a self. But I want to point out the Buddha is so down for this practice. <laughs> this is also called the bliss of blamelessness. That, oh, there's ethics. I'm engaging in ethics and it feels so good because I did something ethical today. I offered my fellow yogis silence. Wow, that feels good. I, skillfulness in that. I invite you to explore that, especially at the end of the day today, maybe. What would you do well today? And to claim it. It's a great practice. My partner and I at times, before we go to sleep, we'll, we'll ask each other, what'd you do well today? And I can notice my mind, of course, my mind goes through the list of all the things I didn't do well. It is so good at that. <laughs> I think I get to, to 10 before I get to one on the other list. 
And it feels good to be able to say, and it's courageous for me to say, this is what I did well today. It was a really sweet thing. So I invite you to, to, to play with that. It's, it's part of the practice. It's onward leading. It's part of the bliss of blame, blamelessness. It is a skillful use of conventional truth. So maybe we're getting a sense of the words of Nagarjuna. The Buddhist teaching of the Dharma is based on two truths, a truth of worldly convention, like this worldly convention of me, and a liberating truth. And both are true, true in terms of them being onward leading. I think there's other examples of this as well about these two truths that I find important to keep in mind when navigating not only issues of self, but just other aspects of our experience. In order to, to explain one of these is it's uh, to use just a haiku by the, the really the brilliant poet uh, Isa. He says, the world of dew, as in dewdrops on the grass, the world of dew is just the world of dew. And yet, the world of dew is just the world of dew. And yet, it's true. The world of dew is just the world of truth. This is, you could say, the liberating truth. It's the scene, the scene, the scene of how we create the world into things. And part of this practice is to see that it's processes. Oh, this world, it's not static. It's not a thing. It comes and goes like a dewdrop on the grass. Oh, that's what's liberating is seeing a Nietzsche arising and passing. This is the scene of the stream enter, this liberating truth. And the conventional truth of, and yet. Uh, the, I think in, important to, to understand this haiku, it's, it's uh, good to know that uh, Isa wrote this poem at a particular time. He wrote it at the burial of his two-year-old daughter. And it was, he had lost, I think, three or four children before that. The world of dew is, is only the world of dew. And yet, we feel the pain of that loss and grieve. We cry when our loved ones die. And yet, right? and yet, this is what it is. We live in this human world.
Both are important, liberating truth, coming to terms with this impermanent world. And the conventional truth of making a space for our grieving hearts and to validate that process. And I feel that through this, our tears become the tears of wisdom. They become the tears of beauty. And I wonder, I wonder about the Buddha in this context of loss, in this context of this dance between the conventional truth and the liberating truth of the world of do is just a world of do, and yet. And I come to his experience of loss, his experience of loss of his two chief disciples, he's, his two good friends that he had so much of a heart connection with the Venerable Sariputta and the Venerable Mahamogalana, who died in relatively close proximity to one another. This was a big loss for the Buddha. And when he receives news of this, he's, he's amongst the assembly of monastics. And remember, the assembly of monastics, there could be a hundred, maybe two hundred monastics there in the, in the crowd. So here he's looking out onto this crowd of a hundred or two hundred monastics. And this is what he says. He says, bhikkhus, or practitioners, this assembly right now appears to me as if it's empty. Now that the Venerable Sariputta and Mahamogalana are here. Isn't that an interesting statement? It appears as if it's empty. That's not an, that's not a, a statement of kind of kind of a practical statement of what he's seen. It's an emotional statement of what he's seen, isn't it? Because it's full of all kinds of people, but it feels like it's empty. So this is an emotional statement, and and speaks so much to the feeling of loss, doesn't it? of that looking around and things feel empty. You know, I feel W.S. Merwin, the, uh, the great U.S. poet who died earlier this year. He's a U.S. poet, poet uh, laureate once and received Pulitzer Prize for his poetry. And I feel like he, he really shares this particular quality of grieving, of loss, just in this, these two lines of this very short poem. He says, your absence has gone through me like thread through a needle. Everything I do is stitched with its color. Your absence, your absence has gone through me like thread through a needle. Everything I do is stitched with its color. Like that sense of ab- absence, how how it feels like we carry it in our heart and then we look out onto the world and it looks absent, it looks empty.
So there's some kind of emotion, I imagine, in the Buddha's heart. And yet, a few lines down, he says something like, and there is no sorrow nor lamentation in the Tathagata around this loss. Maybe this is this mixture of the liberating truth that he carries in his heart, but still carrying in his heart the conventional truth of the pain that comes with grieving, with loss. I think this is so important to keep in mind as we practice. How do you tend to both of these aspects of our experience? Leonard Cohen puts it so well in one of his poem, uh, one of his songs. He says, "I, I knew, know your burden's heavy, as you wheel it through the night. The guru says it's empty, but that doesn't mean it's light." So today, as you continue to engage in these practices of emptiness, allowing there to be this liberating truth, the seeing that it's just concepts, just conceptualizations, and yet, to remember the and yet of, of this human world that we live in as well. Let's just sit for uh, a few moments here. Just a couple of announcements. Uh, the individual practice discussions will continue this morning. And 
Ying will be sitting in on my practice discussions for the f uh, the first part, and then with Don in the uh, the, the second part of the morning. Um, so now we have this open practice period. So feel free to continue to to sit in meditation or to begin with a walking meditation. <laughs> 